0: Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Thank you so much for listening. I'm wishing the best this week to you and yours. Getting ready for Super Wild Card Weekend in the NFL. The first ever uh, Super Wild Card Weekend, not to be confused with Super Weenie Hut Juniors from SpongeBob SquarePants. And a lot to discuss this week. We'll start with the National Championship game. We're also going to talk about any of the games uh, this last weekend of the NFL season, Week 18, that featured any playoff implications or at least led to uh, a postseason appearance. Talk about a couple of the firings uh, so far this off season. And uh, again, I I really don't like having to discuss all this stuff, but well, I, I like paying tribute to people, but I. Uh, don't like that we have to keep talking about uh, famous and really beloved people dying, but uh, Don Maynard passing away this week. And although, again, it's not really a sports-related one, Bob Saget, I, I do want to talk a little bit about him just because he was, again, another uh, major major uh, tr- transformative cultural figure, I would say. Uh, well, we'll talk about uh, John Lester retiring, Clay Thompson coming back to the court, a little bit of NHL stuff, and a couple of major hires in the lower level of Major League Baseball, or, or in Minor League Baseball, pardon me. But we begin, of course, with what turned out to be a pretty good national championship game. Georgia over Alabama by a score of 33-18, to 18. and, you know, I don't root for anybody, but I think to see... A team other than Alabama, even or other than Alabama or Clemson or perhaps Ohio State, win the national championship is something even if it's another SEC school is something that is ultimately good for college football. Although it it would be a major milestone if a first one a non-SEC ACC or ACC or Big Ten school won, let alone a an. A non-power five school winning the national championship—it is something for Georgia. It's something pretty big. They haven't won in 41 years. Hadn't. Well, let's rephrase that. Hadn't won in 41 years. This is a team that did not know who did not know who its quarterback was at the beginning at the beginning of the year, or at least it wasn't who they thought it was going to be by year's end. Alabama, meanwhile, Nick Saban has cemented his name as uh, perhaps, it's kind of an oxymoron if I say, uh, cemented his name as perhaps the greatest college football coach of all time, and they had a Heisman winner, the first ever Heisman winning quarterback at Alabama, which is really saying something because Alabama, I believe, is the only college with uh, three Hall of Fame quarterbacks, three Pro Football Hall of Fame quarterbacks to go there. Bart Starr, who, for my money, I honestly think is actually a top, might be the lower end of the top ten QBs of all time, and and one of the best quarterbacks of the pre Super Bowl era. That for for much of his career. You have Joe Namath, who, as we'll talk about with Tom Maynard later later helped transform the game of football with the with Super Bowl three and, and made the AFL so culturally relevant and helped reinvent the passing game. And then you have Ken Stabler, the snake, a great quarterback who went in the Hall of Fame too late and was the face of the Oakland Raiders for many years. None of those guys ever won the Heisman. It took Alabama until 2009 with Mark Ingram to have a Heisman Trophy winner, which is incredibly hard to believe. And since then, they've had Ingram... They've had Derrick Henry. They've had Devontae Smith. Jalen Hurts, of course, would transfer and then win the Heisman at Oklahoma. And now you have Bryce Young. I believe it's just four. I might be missing one. But uh, this is a game that a lot of people thought, including myself, that Alabama would win. You, You assume every year that Alabama is going to be in the national championship, and you assume most years that Alabama will be the national champion. It's just something to which we have become accustomed In the last 12 or so years, as well as something to which past generations were accustomed in the 1960s and 70s under Bear Bryant. Maybe even further further back than that at times. But this was a tremendous upset. This game was kind of on the flip side of when Georgia and Alabama met in the national championship game. I believe it was four years ago in Atlanta. And uh, Tua Tugabailoa came in at halftime, Alabama trailing, and they went on to win in overtime. This was kind of a flip side of that in that Alabama had the lead at the half, not necessarily commanding the game. They had a 9-6 lead at halftime. It was all field goals, but Alabama was in front, and Georgia really turned it around Most notably in the fourth quarter. They put up 20 of their 33 points in the fourth quarter. They put up 27 points on Alabama in the second half and limited them to just nine points in each half of the game. So outscoring Alabama 27-9 in the second half, putting them over the top, a remarkable feat for a feared defense. Uh, You thought Alabama's defense was feared. Georgia's defense was the real deal because I don't think I had... In a few games I've seen with Alabama this year, I don't think I had seen Bryce Young nearly as pressured in any other game as he had in this one. The pass rush... Much like the the Super Bowl last year, the pass rush was the key to victory, probably. Even though Bryce Young threw for 369 yards, he threw two interceptions, and one of them... The pick six, bit ironically, that put away the game after the pick six that put away the SEC championship game for Alabama over Georgia, 41-24, to Georgia still able to get into the playoff, and now they run the table to become the national champions. Stetson Bennett, a guy who the media keeps throwing out that idea of the underdog, Stetson Bennett, a guy who wanted to play, Apparently, at age three, said he wanted to play quarterback at the University of Georgia. Guy who really only got recruited by mid majors, ended up going to junior college. Eventually, was able to transfer to Georgia. Sat behind like two or three quarterbacks for for a few years. Finally, gets his opportunity, or, and not even at the beginning of this year, but partway into this year, behind J.T. Daniels. And didn't carry the team, but he did his job. Especially in this national championship game. Named offensive player of the game. 17 of 26, 224 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Now Bryce Young, most of Bryce Young's stats were more impressive. He went 35 of 57 for 369 yards and a touchdown. But the problem is he threw two interceptions. Bryce Young completed more passes than Stetson Bennett even threw. And that's how you have to realize that a lot of times the team that's more pass-happy does not necessarily win. As a matter of fact, a a lot of times it does not happen. And it's the team that manages the game best does a good job. And Bryce Young had managed the game well over the course of the year, but He's been a little more of a gunslinger at times, and I think he had to be a gunslinger in this game because Alabama had only 30 total yards on the ground. Now, it does say that, it says 30 yards. Really, it was probably more like 100, but that's, that's not that much considering Brian Robinson had dominated on the ground and had the best game of his young life against Cincinnati in the semifinal. Robinson in this game, though, he had 22 carries, but only for 68 yards. Just over three yards a carry. That is not a supplementary or complementary run game. Trey Sanders had two carries for five yards. They marked Bryce Young as having four carries for negative 43 yards. I I would think those are all really sacks. but And yeah, it says four sacks for... Georgia but still a lot uh, a, a weak run game regardless for Alabama and that forced Bryce young to throw the football Georgia again I had mentioned before the Georgia Michigan game that Georgia had a much better had a much deeper running back core I would say they didn't really rely on one guy so much as Michigan did but Georgia did their job Samir white had 13 carries for 84 yards and a touchdown but that was out of only a hundred and four that was only part of 140 yards on the ground for Georgia. And uh, their their receiving was good enough. Uh, Brock Bowers limited to four catches for 36 yards and a touchdown. Their leading leading receiver was George Pickens with 52 yards, and that was on one catch. But really, a a fantastic job. Georgia defense got to, I was going to say tug of my low, it got to Young four times. Two picks, including the pick six by Keely Ringo, and Georgia actually did it. The, the pick six of Young in the final two minutes. It's kind of appropriate that there was a changing of the guard here. Not to say it's a, a long-term changing of the guard or that Alabama will not be here next year, but it's rather appropriate that Georgia takes over from Alabama in, I would say, a non-traditional bowl game location. Because normally you'll see, especially for a national championship, you will see it's either at the Orange Bowl in Miami, it's at the perhaps the, the Cotton Bowl in Dallas or the Dallas area, to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, to the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans, or it's at the Peach Bowl in Atlanta. Or or maybe at the the Fiesta Bowl out in the Phoenix area. But this was in Indianapolis. It's not a place where you see a lot of bowl games. Even for a dome, it's still in the north. A lot of these bowl games are in the south in warm weather climates. And so it was, maybe that's just me, but it's something that helped symbolize the sort of changing of the guard. We move on here to the NFL and what had happened in the days before all of the college madness. So the Chiefs defeat the Broncos by a score of 28-24 to 24 in Denver. Chiefs needed to win in order to secure the 2C. They did so. The Titan win prevented them from clinching the best record in the AFC and home field throughout, as well as that first round bye. Broncos actually played Pretty well. Drew Locke looked good to me. I believe it or not. I, if Teddy Bridgewater was in, they might have won this game. I wouldn't be surprised if they would have because Bridgewater is obviously the better quarterback and manages the game a lot better. Not to mention he's a veteran. But Drew Locke, I think, made a very good argument that he still could be a very strong starting quarterback in this league, whether it's in Denver or elsewhere. Probably made actually he probably proved that for the first time on Saturday against Kansas City. And the Broncos almost defeated KC and would have lowered them to, I believe they would have been lowered to the three seed, considering Buffalo's win. I could be wrong. But uh, they lost this game in large part due to the Touchdown by Melvin Ingram, that, that turned out to be the winning touchdown. Uh, stripping the football and taking it over 80 yards into the end zone. Denver was knocking on the door. This was a 10-14 to 14 point swing. Chiefs defense did, jo- did its job, though, and secured the game. I, I will say the one argument against Drew Lock and we keep talking about You know, we've talked about Ben Roethlisberger in the last couple of weeks and how his career will come to an end after this year. But there's the lore of that tackle in the divisional round against the Colts in the uh, en route to the Steelers' first Super Bowl under Roethlisberger. And what a key play that was. Drew Locke, the one argument I have against Drew Locke, besides obviously his reputation for the first couple years, but the one argument I have against Drew Locke from this game alone in making him the starting quarterback it was his tackling again that's not a requ- that's not necessarily that's not normally a requirement of a quarterback but he made a pretty weak tackle attempt on ingram really could not get his arms around him i know he's smaller compared to a linebacker but this was a poor tackling attempt and that let ingram go the distance whereas you know maybe Denver stops them their defense had done a decent job the defense had The defense ended up limiting Kansas City to 21 points, and then, of course, the 7 off the turnover. But the Chiefs uh, do win. Vic Fangio was fired after the game, after three seasons. I think somewhat unfairly. I think the Broncos... have The the biggest problem for the Broncos was finding a solution at quarterback. Vic Fangio is a more defensive-minded coach. The defense has done well enough, even after trading Von Miller to the Rams. There's obviously been some turnover in the front office with John Elway uh, deciding to depart the GM role, or his executive role, pardon me. And, you know, the, the Broncos had drafted their receivers. It looked like they were a good enough team, but... And then you had Teddy Bridgewater, a veteran quarterback, who finally came in, and the Broncos looked really good early on. But Bridgewater was also hurt the last couple of weeks. That doesn't necessarily mean they would have made the playoffs anyway, but it would have made a much better argument for Fangio to remain in Denver after the showing against Kansas City. You know, some teams, even if you miss the playoffs, if you you can still finish on a high note in comparison to much of the rest of the year if you can show that you can play for your coach at the end of the season then you know your your coach can stick around even in a losing year i thought Vic Fangio actually did a pretty good job this year finished 7 and 10 he was without he was without Teddy Bridgewater the last few weeks almost knocked off the chiefs in this final week and i think that's rather unfair but i also think that some team whether rightfully or not, is going to take a chance on him. They, they certainly would as a defensive coordinator, but I, I think one, some team will still take a chance on him as a head coach after this year. And probably, there are probably some head coaching openings that, that could that could use him. Uh, Cowboys crush the Eagles by a score of 51-26. Eagles sit their guys. They go, they go without Jalen Hurts. They go with Gardner Minshew instead. They dropped from the 6th seed to the 7th seed with a 49er win. They had already clinched a playoff spot, but they go down to the 7th seed. But because the Niners beat the Rams and the Bucks beat the Panthers, Rams go down, Bucks go up, and the Eagles will still have to go to Tampa, which I think is a little more frightening than having to go play the Rams on the road, especially after this week. Not to mention there is, again, as slim as it would be if you had the sixth seed, it is now impossible for the Eagles to get a home game this postseason. Cowboys, meanwhile, are able to, with the Rams' loss, move up to the three seed. So they'll host the San Francisco 49ers. Although I would say I'd rather, if I were the Cowboys, I'd rather host the Eagles than have to host the 49ers because the Eagles, I think, are a fairly one-dimensional offense and a team that has not had to, that has not beaten a winning team this year, yet still got into the playoffs. One, I think, only three teams to actually do that. To actually not beat a winning team. The Bengals, for some reason, I, I don't quite understand why the Bengals decided to rest their starters when they could have played for. Uh, they they still could have played for the three seed, but they. Sat their starters in a 21-16 loss to Cleveland in Cleveland, which drops them to the four seed with Buffalo's win. And it gives them instead of a home game against well, let's see, it would have been against New England. Now they face the Raiders. And though the Raiders have impressed as of late, I'd probably I'd rather face. I would definitely rather face the Raiders than have to face Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. Even if, yeah, it's no, it's no longer Tom Brady. It's still Belichick. It's the same offensive system with Mac Jones and a, and a guy who's similar. That's kind of like facing the 0 one Patriots. I think, be, based on Mac Jones' development, I think that's, I, I think that's what it's similar to. I'd rather face the Raiders, Vikings. This week, didn't have anything for which to play, but they decided to to fire Mike Zimmer, the head coach, and Chris Spielman, the general manager. Mike Mike Zimmer's tenure comes to an end after eight seasons. Three playoff appearances, most importantly, a trip to the NFC Championship game in 2017. One could argue that that was a a fluke, I guess. Any of uh, Zimmer's detractors could argue that that is a fluke because... Case Keenum, That was, of course, the Minneapolis Miracle that even put them in the NFC Championship game. Case Keenum to Stefan Diggs. But one could also one could also argue that they probably should have beaten the Eagles, an Eagle team that did not have Carson Wentz, a, a potential MVP candidate. Then again, the Eagles went out and proved us all wrong anyway when they defeated the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. Point is, Zimmer. Zimmer's time in Minnesota, I don't believe, is a failure. Just because he didn't win the Super Bowl or reach the Super Bowl, I don't think that that means he is a failure. Three postseason appearances. You get to the NFC Championship game. That's a remarkable achievement. And I think he did did what he could with this team. I think Spielman is more at fault because while he he, he built good teams at times, but... This particular iteration, the last two, three years of Minnesota Viking football, very strong offense. I actually believe that the Vikings made the right decision in signing Kirk Cousins because he's put up good numbers. But the problem is the defense is very weak. I mentioned it during the draft that last year the, the Vikings had, I think, like a top five offensive season in the franchise's history. And I want to say a bottom five defensive season in franchise history. Now, the Vikings did not address that in the draft. Chris Spielman did not address that in the draft. And that is why they ended up where they did. What, 7-10, I want to say? And out of the playoffs. I don't think he really did enough to help them out. Because Kirk Cousins and Dalvin Cook and Justin Jefferson in that offense can only do... So much. Also, say that losing Adam Thielen for the year certainly did not help. But again, the offense was not the issue. The offense was not the reason they lost X amount of games this year. It was a, a, a weak, pretty weak defense, especially in the secondary, a secondary that was once very strong and just deteriorated pretty quickly. Now, speaking of collapses, Indianapolis Colts fall 26 to 11 in Jacksonville. The previously two and fourteen Jaguars, the Colts were reported to apparently have had a ninety-eight percent chance to make the playoffs at the start of the day. I believe all they had to do was beat the Jaguars, and they were in the playoffs. But because they lost, and the Steelers won, Colts are out. I believe it or not, it's hard to believe they've lost seven consecutive games in Jacksonville. And they also miss out on the postseason. I would say, well, it, it, this is a, not an excuse because it, it's inexcusable to lose to the Jaguars in in Week 18, and all you have to do is beat all you have to do is beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. You're in the playoffs. Everybody was talking about dressing in clown paint, clown outfits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if you're a Jaguar fan. But I will say the Colts, in hindsight, also did not benefit from losing Carson Wentz and Quentin Nelson for the first few games of the season. They were not at their best. They got hotter as the season rolled along. But again, missing the playoffs, there was probably no team, The maybe no team... Uh, the Colts were more likely to beat in any given week than the Jacksonville Jaguars, and so I, it's really inexcusable that they missed this. This is akin to the like the 2003 Minnesota Vikings losing to the what like three and 12 Arizona Cardinals, I believe, were playing for nothing, and the Vikings had collapsed, and then that touchdown by Nate Poole. You can look it up. Nate Poole was actually given the key to the city of Green Bay, by the way, and I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if Trevor Lawrence gets the key to the city of Pittsburgh after this week. Speaking of which, Steelers defeat the Ravens in overtime, 16 to 13, on the road. No Lamar Jackson. The Ravens did have Tyler Huntley back, but the Steeler defense kept him in check. On a uh, not a not a great weather day for Baltimore, anyway. They keep Big Ben's career alive with Charger and Colt losses. They go to Kansas City. I'd like to say that's going to be a close game. but I think the Steeler defense is strong, but the Steeler offense, I can't imagine, is going to hold its weight. I would take Kansas City in that game. While I'm at it, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll take the Bengals to top the Raiders. And I'll take Buffalo to hold off the Patriots. NFC. Bucks will beat the Eagles. Should beat the Eagles. I have a lot more faith in the 49ers after this week, in their win over the Rams. But I'm still taking Dallas. And then the Cardinals go to LA. I'd have to take the I'd have to take the Rams though, even after losing this week at home to the Niners with an overwhelmingly Niner-friendly crowd. To my surprise, and to everybody's surprise in Inglewood, apparently the, the Rams were surprised too, I would still say the, uh, the Rams probably should beat the Cardinals, especially after the mistakes the Cardinals made on Monday Night Football in Glendale. The Cardinals losing to the Seahawks at home to end the season. An inexcusable loss. So I would take the Rams in that one. Anyway, back to this week of games. The Steelers' T.J. Watt ties Michael Strahan's official record of 22 and a half sacks. There was a report that maybe the Steelers were going to file a, I guess, a grievance. I don't know if that's the official term with the league that one of the play, one of the plays that was not considered a sack should be considered a sack in Week 18. I don't know. I will also say it took an extra week for T.J. Watt. That's that's another part of it, and that uh, technically it's not the record. We spoke about this earlier this year, that Pro Football Reference looked at, or was, was able to calculate the sacks from before 1982, the first year that the sack was a, an official stat, and they discovered that, at least based on their calculations, Al Bubba Baker of the Detroit Lions Recorded 23 sacks in 1978 in in uh, his rookie season. I might add, at age 21. Whereas most of the players, every player in the top 10 is at least 25, and uh, pretty much every player in the top 20 is at least 23. In terms of at least unofficial leaders. But anyway, as anyway as to the seating itself. Titans survived the Texans 28-25 after holding a 21-0 lead at halftime over Houston. They clinched the top seed in the AFC. Davis Mills proving, again, that he might actually be the future for Houston. Uh, Bills beat the Jets by a score of 27-10 to clinch the division, plus the three seed with a Cincinnati loss. And they will host the New England Patriots. I will say, from the Jets' standpoint... Jets should be pretty proud of this game. Obviously, their year, 4-13, not, not great. But the Jets played the Bills much closer than they did in East Rutherford earlier this year. That was a score of 48-17. to That's also in part because Mike White was a quarterback. This was a Mike White of whom many Jet fans had much higher expectations after his performance against Cincinnati. But the Jets really limited their turnovers in this game. They showed a lot more confidence entering next year. Their defense was a lot stronger, and down the stretch, the Jets looked like a better football team overall. That's one of the teams where, I wouldn't say based on Week 18 alone, but the last few weeks of the season, they looked a lot more like an actual football team. They they actually looked like they might have a future. Heading back to the West Coast, the 49ers... Stunned the Rams 27-24 in L.A. behind a great road crowd. This was one of the best games of the week. Garoppolo ended up going 23-32 of for 316 yards and a touchdown with a torn throwing thumb ligament. Really an impressive win for the 49ers. I did not think they had it in them to beat the Rams, especially on the road. And so that's a huge confidence booster going into the postseason. Had they lost this game, the Saints would have been in the playoffs. The Saints defeated the Falcons this week. So, a big win for the Niners as they go to Dallas. And I would... I could make the argument that the Rams are a better team than the Cowboys, despite the Cowboys having the higher seed. The, the Niners... Again, I'll take the Cowboys this week, but the Niners very well could pull off a victory. If they manage the game well enough, they, if they do a lot of things right, they, could, they honestly could... Go to if not win the Super Bowl this year. They are a, they are a very good sleeper team. Meanwhile, Eric Weddle will join the Rams for the playoffs with Jordan Fuller out. Jordan Fuller, fun fact, actually, I I believe I actually recorded his games. His he went to the sister school of my high school, and so I did the end zone camera for for our team. So I. Uh, so that's I probably actually recorded Jordan Fuller before, which is pretty funny. Unfortunately, he is out. Eric Weddle out of retirement from the Chargers, plays for the Rams. I don't know what he's got left in him, but the Rams obviously saw something. Patriots fall 33 to 24 in Miami, and fall from the five seed to the six seed, which leads them to go to Buffalo to face the Bills, or go to Orchard Park to face the Bills instead of going to Cincinnati, had they won. Dolphins, meanwhile, fire Brian Flores after three seasons for some really stupid reason. The team ended up finishing at 9-8 on the year after starting 1-7. and seven. They won eight of their last nine games to finish the season, and finished, what, I think a game out of the postseason. Flores ends 24-25 over three years with the Dolphins. He is only the fourth coach in the history of the organization to record two winning seasons in his first three years with the team. He I also did not realize he went 4-2 and two against the Patriots, albeit a Patriot team that had gone through turmoil with, uh, Tom Brady's departure, but they're still the New England Patriots. They still made the playoffs two years ago. They made the playoffs this year, and they were still pretty, fairly good last year. They were okay, at least. They were, what, 6-10, and 10, I think. So they went 4-2 against Bill Belichick, who was at least the top two coach in the history of the game, and his former boss. The Dolphins were not incredible offensively. There were questions at times about Tua Tagovailoa. There still are. But the fact that the Dolphins went nine and eight after all of that, and were just about five hundred over three years, this is a terrible firing. This is really just a really just a not a smart firing whatsoever. I don't get it. I I really just do not understand why the Dolphins would fire Brian Flores after. I mean, I, it seems like it's been a while since the Dolphins have really had a good coach. I don't know. Maybe he's probably the best coach they've had since what? Maybe Tony Sperano? with the Dolphins in the late two thousands. Late two thousands. I mean, the, the Dolphins are not a team that can afford to really be picky. They haven't won a championship in 40 is it 47 years now They haven't been to the Super Bowl in 30 what 38 years I haven't I'm not sure they've won a playoff game since Dan Marino left I don't believe. And this is a guy who has created a future and a winning culture, or at least is on pace for, to create a winning culture in the organization, and you let him go. I don't I don't get this one at all. Uh, meanwhile, a, a Florida organization with their act together. The Buccaneers blow out the Panthers by a score of 41-17, to jump to the 2C with a ram loss. They host the Eagles. That game might be slaughter. And most importantly this week, Sunday night football, the Raiders defeat the Chargers 35 to 32 in overtime in one of the best games in recent memory. This was first off, I said this was going to be emotional. This is the first Raider home game since John Madden's passing. The torch was lit by his family this weekend. And then the last what? Like 15, 20 minutes of 15-20 uh, minute, minutes of game time. Fantastic. Outstanding drama. Chargers come back from now 29-14 to 14 in the waning minutes of the fourth quarter. Justin Herbert throws a touchdown on 4th and 21 to keep their season alive. They get the ball back after forcing a punt. The Chargers drive over 70 yards in 19 plays. And just over two minutes. They conducted 19 plays in just over two minutes. They converted on fourth and long twice, and that's not even including one fourth down converted by penalty. And then Herbert hits Mike Williams from 12 yards out as time expires. That was... I think one of the longest, most drawn-out, thrilling drives I've ever seen in football. You, really, they milked as much, it's not intentional, but they milked as much drama out of that as they possibly could. Chargers, be- you could not emphasize how much, how, by how much the Chargers were barely staying alive on that drive. Raiders and Chargers then in overtime, Trade field goals. The Raiders had gotten the ball first, so Chargers kick off after the field goal. Josh Jacobs uh, on the first field goal. Josh Jacobs single-handedly carried the Raiders near near field goal range. He had three carries for 46 yards. The last one was for no gain. Anyways, really two for 46. And then the Raider fight the final Raider drive. Three to- three drives took up this 10 minute overtime. And then of course they're kicking themselves in Pittsburgh, they're tearing out their hair because a uh, all this time we're not just thinking about the Raiders and the Chargers, who's going to win, who's going to go to the playoffs. We are also thinking about the people in Pittsburgh who are throwing things at their television and biting their fingernails down to the nub until they're bleeding and uh, until they are without fingers. The Chargers, with the Raiders having the ball at the 47-yard line, uh, Brandon Staley calls timeout with... Well, actually, ball at the 39-yard line for the Raiders. Brandon Staley calls timeout with 38 seconds left defensively for the Chargers, which is kind of pointless because you're not getting the ball back. Either the Raiders are going to try to kick a long field goal, or... They're just going to run out the clock. And we're probably going to be debating this for a long time, but it seemed like the Raiders might have been going for the tie. Raiders might have just been trying to run out the clock. And the timeout might have prompted them to play for the win. The Raiders, some evidence here, the Raiders had conducted only two plays between the two-minute warning and that timeout in a minute and 22 seconds. They were both runs, they moved the ball from the 47-yard line of the Chargers to the 39-yard line. That would set them up for a long, long field goal at 56 yards. Makeable, but a long field goal nonetheless. After the timeout, they do run the ball again, but Jacobs runs for 10 yards this time, and the Raiders, instead of letting the clock run down, they easily could have let the clock run down and, just, and made sure they were in the playoffs anyway. Jacobs runs for 10 on third and four. That sets up a much more makeable 47 yard field goal for Daniel Carlson. Raiders, again, could have run the clock down and taken a 56 yard field goal or let the game end in a tie. The one argument against the theory that the Raiders were going to play for the tie is that a win would move them up, a win as opposed to a tie would move them up from a six seed to a five-seed, which would send them to Cincinnati instead of Buffalo. Again, apples and oranges. You're in the playoffs regardless, but it's, at least in terms of seeding, it's an improvement. Also, the only way, unless there was somehow a fumble, the only way the Raiders were going to absolutely lose this game and miss the playoffs Playoffs was if the Chargers not only blocked the kick, but were able to return it for a touchdown. So, this was pretty unlikely and pretty low risk for the Raiders just to try to move up one seed, as opposed to what would happen with just a tie. I would think Charger fans are probably furious, and it might be at multiple people, they might be furious at the Raiders for... Going for the win, they might be furious at the at Brandon Stanley for calling the timeout. And it's somewhat appropriate that there could be some bad blood between these two teams. The in the first home game after John Madden's passing, when you consider the the Holy Roller play. If you don't know the Holy Roller play, it was God. What was this? Nineteen seventy six. Seventy-eight Raiders were playing in San Diego. Ken Stabler on the last play of the game fumbles the ball forward. It looks it looks rather like an incomplete pass, like he's trying to throw the ball, but they rule it a fumble. Dave Casper goes for the ball and seemingly tosses it forward. That is also ruled a fumble. Raiders recovered in the end zone for a touchdown. One of the most controversial games in NFL history. Raiders are given the win, and it's actually because of that that we now have the rule that you can't advance a fumble as an offensive team within the final two minutes of, I believe, of regulation. So that's remarkable, insane. But the Raiders are going to the playoffs, and their first real year in Las Vegas, their first year with fans, they're going to the playoffs. Um, a couple more things we'll talk about a couple of uh, firings Lions fire Anthony Lynn former Charger head coach and the offensive coordinator uh, for some reason I thought the Lions were actually a lot better than their record indicated I've said that on multiple occasions they I mean they beat the Cardinals that's one thing alone they beat the Cardinals this year and they've played a lot of teams close. They played the 49ers closely. They played the Packers pretty closely. Or, as a matter of fact, they defeated the Packers. You almost forget because the Packers are just not playing for anything. But they beat the Packers, albeit without Aaron Rodgers in the second half, but they won. And the Lions made a lot of improvements this year, I thought. In, in many ways, in terms of personnel, I thought they made a lot, a lot of improvements. There's still much work to be done, but their record does not tell the whole story, and I think it's rather unfair for Lynn to be fired. I think he will get an opportunity somewhere else to be an offensive coordinator. If he keeps up at that, he'll we'll get an opportunity to be a head coach again. Giants had multiple firings. Well, Let me rephrase that, actually. Giants had multiple departures. Dave Gettleman retires after four seasons as the Giants general manager. They failed to make the postseason, failed to have a winning season in his time as the organization's GM. Biggest problem, I would say, with the Giants, besides injuries and play calling, I I would say their Giants biggest and most consistent problem is the offensive line. Now, I would say that is something that Dave Gettleman attempted to address in the form of drafting Andrew Thomas, who I think is the one very good offensive lineman the Giants have. Early on, Will Hernandez looked good. The Nate Solder signing was a swing and a miss, but a thoughtful attempt. And I mean, trading away, letting Remmers and Zeitler, go, or letting Kevin Zeitler go, was not an incredible move. That that was ultimately the biggest problem. I would say the Galladay signing. The Galladay sign, signing, I can't even really pin on him because Galladay is good when they throw him the football. I mean, he, he did a lot of good things. He drafted Kadarius Tony. He, if he had, an, if he had an offensive, and the first two years looked like Saquon Barkley was a very good draft pick. Especially when you consider where Darnold and Mayfield have ended up, but then the injuries have really ra- the injuries have really ravaged the Giants over the last few years. I mean, there was a year where they lost their top three wide receivers in one game. I don't think Dave Gettleman was quite as bad as some people might say, but I he's old enough that I understand that he's retiring. And look, in part, I. In part, this is, he probably would have been fired, but I've heard so many people say, you know, why why does he get the satisfaction of retiring instead of getting, you know, instead of Joe Judge getting, as opposed to Joe Judge getting fired? For anyone who has that argument, I say, who cares? He's gone regardless. Why does that even matter? That shouldn't make a difference. You're losing regardless. That's not going to be some consolation prize that you're going to be satisfied because, oh, you, you fired Gettleman, as opposed to him retiring. You're losing regardless. That shouldn't make any difference. And I will say, the one argument for Gettleman leaving on his own terms... You also forget forget this guy fought cancer while doing the job. And then the pandemic certainly didn't help in the last year or two where it complicated everything. And I know that's a curve where everybody had to face that, but it's true. But Dave Gettleman did a lot of great things for the organization, not necessarily as a general manager, but he had worked in the Giants organization before becoming the Panthers' GM. He was a major part of the Giants organization and was a part not only of the two Super Bowl champion teams under Tom Coughlin and Eli Manning uh, and uh, Jerry Reese, really formed by Ernie Accorsi, in whose front office Gellman worked, but also for the Giants team that reached the Super Bowl against the Ravens, in the 2000 season. So, not necessarily for his time as general manager, but for his time with the organization in all, Giant fans actually owe him a great debt of gratitude. So, he look, he tried. I think he, he, he did a lot more than Ben McAdoo did. Obviously different as a head coach, but the thing is with... I think somebody brought this up. I think it was my brother brought this up. Who was the worst of the last three head coaches? Joe Judge, Pat Shermer, or Ben McAdoo? Now, in term, as we really transition into Judge now, Judge fired by the Giants after two seasons. In terms of on-field performance, McAdoo was actually the best because the Giants reached the postseason in his first year. He is the only coach to lead the Giants to the postseason in the last... 10 seasons, but in terms of fan service, fan loyalty, respect to the organization, he's probably actually the worst, because he not only sat Eli Manning and broke his consecutive game streak, but also sat him for Geno Smith, who, again, with all due respect... Although obviously this 96 mile an hour, uh, what DUI this week is pretty disgraceful. With all due respect to him as a quarterback, is not the best replacement, even for an Eli Manning who was not great at the end. But then you have Pat Shermer who was kind of meh on both fronts, and then Joe Judge who brought promise to the organization in the first year. They went up to six and ten, but. The offense struggled, a lot of injuries, had to deal with meeting the team virtually, meeting the team for the first time as it was virtually as he was hired. And then you have this year, which was, again, injuries. The offense underperformed, had to fire his OC, with whom he was saddled in the first place. Joe Judge lost his cool in these last couple of weeks. That is for sure. Those whole whole clown organization, this is not a clown organization, press conference, that's, that's the one time I've seen him lose his cool since becoming the Giants head coach. But that was the point where you knew he wasn't really fit to be a head coach anymore. That his time with the Giants was over. But regardless of what you think of any of these three guys, the fact that you have to even debate which of these last three guys was the worst shows the poor shape in which this organization has been on the field and maybe in some other places for the last, well, at least the last five years, I can tell you that, but really probably a little longer than that. And so the Giants are going to have to rebuild again. I don't know if they'll break things down completely, but they've interviewed some good people. They've interviewed Adrian Wilson, who is now working as the, I believe, the vice president of the scouting department for the Cardinals after playing for 12 years. Spoke to the assistant GM in Buffalo. Possible they could talk with people in Kansas City, Eric Biennemi included as, as as a coach, I think they should talk to Brian Flores. They should probably go somewhere offensive-minded, considering Patrick Graham has obviously done an excellent job with this defense. It's a team that's been carried by the defense. Needs some offensive improvement. And the biggest thing is going to be addressing the offensive line. So that does it for that whole discussion, but a couple more things I want to discuss, then we'll take a break. Uh, First is Don Maynard passing away this week at the age of 86. If you are from my generation, you probably do not really know much about Don Maynard. But he's a Hall of Fame wide receiver, and he was Joe Namath's biggest target for the 1968 New York Jets. The only Jets Super Bowl winning team. now that team played a crucial role in the history of not only the National Football League, but sports in general. Had a lot to do with the expansion of the NFL, not only geographically, in terms of the number of teams there are, but also the evolution of the game into more of a passing game. They upset the Baltimore Colts, becoming the first AFL team to win the Super Bowl. And there was, a, there was a possibility that, uh, I, I have heard that there were rumors that the AFL teams would kind of be fizzled out once the merger between the two leagues was complete. And so, really the 68 Jets not only proved the AFL could be equal with the NFL, but they, they also may have saved AFC teams from extinction. So Maynard, over his 15 years in the league, really about 13 or 14 full seasons, finished with 11,834 receiving yards, 633 receptions, played 186 games, had 88 touchdowns. These are maybe not incredible numbers by today's standard of wide receiver. That being said, this was a different game. You also have to factor in that Teams only played 14 games at this point, not 16, let alone 17 in the regular season. And on top of that, he also had, uh, despite having 60, he had less than 64 yards a game, but he had nearly 19 yards a catch. That is unheard of in this league. When you think about it the other way, Tom Brady's the best quarterback of all time, has about... Twelve yards per completion. I believe it's twelve. I think I believe he has about twelve yards per completion. Don Maynard had nearly nineteen yards a catch for his career. He had a thousand receiving yards five times, and by the way, this was spread out over a span of nine years. He had over twelve hundred yards in nineteen sixty, in. Just fourteen games, he had a thousand yards in, over a thousand yards in 1962, over 1,200 yards in 1965, a career high and that year league high, 1,434 yards in 1967, and then he had 1,297 yards and ten touchdowns in his season with the 68 Jets. Played 13 years for the Jets, 60 through 72. Played one season, or really two games, with the St. Louis Cardinals in 73. Actually played for the Giants. A lot of people, especially even Jet fans, do not realize he played for the Giants his rookie year. 1958. And uh, that was it. Remarkable, remarkable career. He was not targeted much in the Super Bowl. He was used more as a decoy, really, in the Super Bowl. I believe he was also actually injured. And so Joe Namath targeted George Sauer, mostly in this game. But a great, great career. Four-time Pro Bowler. First-team All-Pro in 1969. Led the league in receiving yards in 1967. Led the league in receiving touchdowns and total touchdowns in 1965. Uh, Really a a fantastic, fantastic player. And for his postseason, only actually played in five playoff games for his career. Two of them were with the Giants, and he didn't make a catch. He was really more of a punt returner. Uh, Those were the NFL, the Eastern Division Championship game against the Cleveland Browns in 1958, and then the the, the the greatest game ever played against the Colts. But again, he was a punt returner in that game. Believe it or not, in the Super Bowl, he did not record a single catch uh, with uh, the Jets against the Baltimore Colts. That was his fourth career playoff game. His third, his third was one for the ages, though. He had six catches for 118 yards and two touchdowns. Against the Oakland Raiders on a cold, blistery, windy day at Shea Stadium. Remember, this is when the Jets were still at Shea Stadium, not at the Meadowlands. And if you've been to Shea Stadium or now City Field, you know, or been to LaGuardia Airport, you know it's right on the water. It is incredibly windy out there, especially on a December 29th freezing cold day. Don Maynard had six catches for 118 yards and two touchdowns. He then also played one more game in the postseason. He had one catch for 18 yards with the Jets against Kansas City in 1969. So Don Maynard, fine career and a transformative player in this league, gone at the age of 86. And then again, this is, you know, he's not a sports figure, but I do want to talk about Bob Saget for a second. Bob Saget gone to the age of 65. Passed away. He was in Orlando. He had just done a, a just stand up for apparently two hours. He had just done apparently a two hour stand up show, which is unhe- unheard of. Uh, no sign of uh, foul play or uh, drug use, although he was reputed at one time to have been um, just say a, a party animal, I guess. Um, he was reputed by many to be one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. I really recommend go to YouTube, look up Rich Eisen's tribute to him. I did not realize they were actually very close friends. Rich Eisen's wife apparently knew Bob Saget, and Bob Saget apparently was at his bachelor party, which is uh, I find hilarious. We all know him for uh, Full House, America's Funniest Home Videos, great shows, and then kind of on the flip side... Also, one of the filthiest stand-up comics ever. I only saw him once in person. It was at the Garden of Laughs at the Theater of uh, Theater at, at Madison Square Garden. Now I think it's the Hulu Theater at MSG, but I always say it's the Theater at MSG. And I don't remember much of it. Also, because Garden of Laughs, if you've never been, it's a it's an awesome show, and. They get a lot of I don't know maybe like a dozen great comedians do a little bit of material and so I what I do remember of Bob Saget was he played in a he sat on a stool sat on a bar stool he played an acoustic guitar and i re- I remember of course he he was definitely f- very foul-mouthed and just a filthy, just almost filthy for the sake of being filthy as a comedian. And I am a huge fan of, well, I'll, 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 I'll let you know, I'm a huge fan of How I Met Your Mother. And if you don't know, Bob Saget was the uh, the the voice of Ted, the narrator, uh, he was the narrator on How I Met Your Mother. And so he tells that he's playing the acoustic guitar, he's on this stool tells this filthy, god-awful, disgusting joke, I can't remember for the life of me what he said, and then at the end of it he goes, and that, kids, is the story of how I met your mother. And that's, <laughs> and especially as a fan of that show, even if you don't, <laughs> even if you don't watch that show, God, was that funny. Um, great comedian, brilliant comedian, did, if you ever seen, he directed Dirty Work, which is one of the most underrated comedies ever, I also say, because he was uh, very close... You may have listened, I did a tribute episode regarding uh, Norm MacDonald, who is one of, if not my favorite comedians of all time. They were very close friends. Bob Saget actually directed Dirty Work. and So to see those guys go four months apart is very sad, but you like to think that they're somewhere together. Bob Saget, also a... He was also a... uh, Along with John Stamos, (laughs) I've heard Jimmy... uh, I think Jimmy Kimmel described but Bob Sagan and John Stamos is like Don, Don Rickles' nieces, which I, th- which I thought was pretty funny. They were incredibly close. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> and then if you've ever seen, there's also his cameo in Half-Baked, which was the same time as Dirty Work came out, which is, again, incredibly filthy, but also hilarious. Nothing I can really mention here, but, uh, God, it was funny. It's sad to see... It is really sad. I, I'm, You know, I talked about this when... When all the ball players, were, all these Hall of Fame ball players, were dying, but it's really sad to see so many uh, beloved people. Uh, not, uh, but look, Bob Saget was not. I'm not going to say Bob Saget was beloved by anyone uh, or everyone, but uh, to see so many beloved people go so soon. Talked about, you know, Betty White and and all these people, and it's a real shame, but. It's also a blessing that we had to ha- that we got to have these people for so long. I, I don't remember. I want to say this is a Derek Jeter quote. Is it Di- Di- Dimaggio? Is it Derek Jeter? I want to say. Uh, uh, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. And that's really what you have to say for all of that. We'll take a break. Come back and talk more. You're on sports in the waiting room. All right, we're back, and I want to talk about a couple of major uh, announcements within the MLB. Obviously not much happening at the moment, but uh, off the of field, first off, John Lester retired this week, and uh, that's a guy who, first off, has, at least for his era, Hall of Fame numbers, guy who pitched 16 years in the major leagues, finished with exactly 200 wins, 631 win percentage, 3.66 ERA, Guy who through 200 innings pretty consistently for most of his career in Boston and first couple of years in Chicago. Although he was not part of the 04 Red Sox team, in a way he was kind of part of reversing the curse in multiple cities. Helped the Red Sox win two championships. Also helped the Cubs end the longest championship drought in the history of pro sports. Finished with 19 wins that year, a career high, well tied for a career high. And I mean, one, of the, one of the biggest things was the guy battled cancer early on, first couple of years in his career. In 2007, won the World Series with the Red Sox, was key piece of that team in the postseason, pitched uh, through a, a shutout in the, the World Series against the Rockies and then came back and, and led them near the World Series the next year, not to mention shortly out of remission. He threw a no-hitter, which I believe was the record fourth for Jason Baratek. Jason Baratek, the only catcher to catch four different no-hitters. That's uh, Lester, Buckholtz, Nomo, and I want to say Pedro Martinez. And uh, won 16 games with the Red Sox in 08, was a key piece for the 13 team and was probably the ace of that staff for a long time. Uh, Was fantastic in the the 13 postseason. Pitched uh, to a .59 ERA in two starts in the World Series against the Cardinals. Then uh, went to Oakland. Obviously, he had his struggles when it came to trying to pick off base runners, sort of a glitch with that, uh, but then went to Chicago and in spite of that was uh, fantastic for the Cubs. Helped them reach the NLCS in his first year there. They got back the next year, was named MVP of the NLCS against the Dodgers. And of course, uh, Got uh, went one and one in the World Series. Pitched three great innings out of the bullpen in Game Seven. I still make that argument that Joe Madden pulled Kyle Hendricks far too soon in that game after four and a third, I think, and one run with a five-one lead. And then of course you know, John Lester gave up a couple of runs on that crazy wild pitch, but then he had three great innings overall. For the Cubs to help them maintain that lead long enough that they could still win in extra innings. Uh, so a really a fantastic career and a guy who I don't know if he'll be a first ballot Hall of Famer, but a guy who's gotten Cy Young votes before. He's been a top ten, yeah, top ten candidate in Cy Young voting four times, five time All Star, and uh, just a one of the best of his generation and the other thing i wanted to mention was the mets retiring keith hernandez's number now keith hernandez is first off part of i would argue the best seinfeld episode ever and secondly member of a key piece of the mets teams in the 80s you could argue you could honestly argue this man should be in the hall of fame Over 1,000 RBIs for his career, over 2,100 hits, 400 doubles, a career 296 hitter, and maybe the best defensive first baseman of all time, a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11-time Gold Glove winner. Led the Cardinals to the World Series title in 82, was co-MVP with Willie Stargell in 79. Helped lead the Mets to a championship in '86, and it, it is not a small feat to be to have your number retired by the Mets. He's in great company because you have Jackie Robinson, of course, you have Tom Seaver, you have Mike Piazza, Casey Stengel, Gil Hodges, and Jerry Kuzman. and so that's a very that's an exclusive club. And one, two, three, four of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame, as at least as a player, if not as a manager. Jerry Kuzman, you can make a good argument for that. And uh, so for Keith Hernandez to go in, especially after uh, he's been a large part of my childhood, I uh, of course I get SNY around here, and I worked at SNY uh, for, I interned at SNY for a while. So to watch him with uh, Gary Cohen, and Ron Darling for the last 15 years he's a, he's a great broadcaster but that shouldn't detract from how good a player he actually was and i would say a fairly underrated player not enough people really value defense even in the even in the you know analytic era since all that took over so that's just something i thought was really cool moving on to baseball baseball basketball Klay Thompson returned to the court for the first time in two and a half years this week. He had a good game, not incredible. 17 points, three assists, one rebound, and a 96-82 win over a much better Cavs team this year. One thing I thought was cool, Draymond Green was hurt, played for a moment before stepping off the court, a calculated a pre-planned move, and the, the Cavs abided by it. Uh, so that was a really nice Thompson... Again, not a great... It wasn't incredible. It's not like he dropped 40. But for a guy who's been out two and a half years to finally return to the floor and, and get all that, uh, get a 17-point game, and get, you forget also, it's his first game ever in San Francisco. It's the first game since they opened the Chase Center. Uh, the, the way his time ended... Uh, it, the way his play ended in the NBA Finals 2019 obviously it was heartbreaking. We thought, I thought Kevin Durant was probably going to be out longer. And then, of course, Thompson gets hurt. He then gets the Achilles injury later later on, which certainly doesn't help. You could at least play on an ACL. But uh, now that he, it, it's going to make that team even more frightening. A team that's in first place anyway, or a team that's, uh, returned to frightening the rest of the league. Fantastic two-way player. Um, hockey, Nicholas Lidstrom, named Red Wings VP of Hockey Operations, perhaps the greatest player from from outside the U.S., I would argue. Uh, career Red Wing, played 20 years, and uh, begins work with GM and former teammate Steve Eisman, who did a lot to build the Tampa Bay Lightning, so obviously they're beginning to find another... Uh, they're really passing the genera- the generations very well in Detroit and building a good culture because that's a team that has not been that good for 10 years at least. But Iserman obviously built a winner in Tampa. Iserman knows hockey. And it's just a smart move, I think. And it's also a good, it, it does a lot of fan service. Nick Lidstrom being one of the most uh, beloved Red Wings ever. Um, NHL All-Star coaches were announced this week. Andrew Brunette for the Florida Panthers, who's done an incredible job after Joel Quenville's firing and him taking over. Uh, Rob Brindamore with Carolina, a team that has uh, soared after a pretty disappointing run in the playoffs last year. Jared Bednar of the Colorado Avalanche, pretty underrated. And uh, Peter DeBoer of the Vegas Golden Knights, who has now uh, led two teams to the Stanley Cup Final already in the Devils and the Sharks, and has done a good job in Vegas. Uh, Just a couple more things before I go. I just want to talk about these uh, historic moves in minor league baseball. Uh, Jamie Vieira, I believe it's pronounced, hired as a minor league hitting coach and Jamie, the woman Jamie, uh, hired as a minor league hitting coach for the Blue Jays. Um, although the club, I don't believe, is formally announced at this point, but it would w- make her the first woman in a coaching role in the organization's history. One day earlier, Rachel Balkovic was announced as the, mani- the manager of the low-A ball Tampa Yankees, making her the first female manager in the history of affiliated professional baseball, So, as opposed to an independent minor league. She, and it's not like this is, you know, a hiring just for the sake of publicity. This is legitimate. She worked for three years as the hitting coach for the FCL Yankees, the Florida Complex League. And she was also the first woman at that position to do that, uh, first woman at that position as well. She is only 34, so the idea of her potential, obviously low A ball, a lot of people work in the minor leagues for their entire lives and never get the opportunity to reach the majors. But at age 34, the fact that she's already managing a low A-ball team, regardless of gender, it's pretty cool to think that you know maybe in my lifetime we might actually have a female MLB manager. I think it's just something uh, really nice. Um, so that, on a bit of a high note, that does it for us this week. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening.